of Exodus. I'm going to read verses 49 and following. It says this. Excuse me, 43 following. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is brought, bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. You shall be eaten, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the, <coughs> excuse me, just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. This is the word of the Lord. So in our story on that night... The homes that are covered in the lamb's blood are passed over while those whose homes are not covered in the blood, death comes. God comes. His wrath, his discipline, his punishment comes to those people. Including in those numbers of people, again, was Pharaoh. On that night, he lost his firstborn son. Again, Pharaoh is believed to be the, the son of God, Ra. And so that means that his son, the Pharaoh's son, is also the son of God. You can kind of see this legacy or lineage that is taking place here. And so on this night, God shows his ultimate power over all the gods and goddesses of Egypt as death comes to the sons of the lower G gods. And so finally, in this moment, Pharaoh says, in the middle of the night, once he recognizes that his son is dead, he calls for Aaron and Moses, and he says, guess what? Get out of town. Take it all. Take your cattle. Take your young people. Take your old people. Here. Here's all of our jewelry, even. Here's our most prized possessions. You can have them. And we see here in this passage as we've seen in earlier passages in chapter 12, that God takes this meal called the Passover. And what are the elements of the Passover? We see inside the passage, and the passage earlier inside of Exodus chapter 12, that there, there was the lamb, right? That they were to eat all of the lamb on that night. The Bible also tells us that they're to eat standing up that night, that they're eat with staff in hand, meaning that they need to be ready to go. They're to eat unleavened bread. They're to to drink as a family, they're to eat as a family. And he tells them inside of chapter 12 and inside of this passage that we read, hey, I want you to continue to do this for as many years as you exist that you need to yearly at least have this meal called the Passover meal to commemorate the night that my wrath passed over you, but also to commemorate that, that you have been covered in the blood, but also to commemorate that this is the night that you were set free. So, you skip thousands, uh, a few thousand years ahead, and we see Jesus on the night before that he would die on the cross, and what is he doing? He is eating this meal. It was a statuette from God, it was a command from God you got to keep eating this meal. You must remember. And as you're eating this meal and kids are asking questions about this meal, you're to tell them once again of this night and that this should be passed on and 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 passed on, and passed on to look at what God has done, that he has covered us in the lamb of God and that he has passed over us and that he has set us free. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, very quickly. 
in the Gospel of Matthew, notice in chapter 26, beginning in verse 17. Jesus, who is a good Jew, he's probably around 33 years of age by this time. That means he's participated with his family in a Passover meal about 33 times. And listen to what happens on the night before he's crucified. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time has, is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, Jesus always makes things weird. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him and to one another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, he answered, he who dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written from him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him, <clears throat> for that man, excuse me, if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Continue on. Now, as they were eating, and what are they eating? The traditional Passover that we just read about. Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take it, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is, again, the word of the Lord. So inside the Bible and inside of church history, you have this thing called the Passover. If you say that to a Jewish person or to the Seder meal, maybe you have heard it called that before. So you have Passover, which is the Seder meal, which maybe you've heard it called the, the Eucharist, or you've heard it called communion, or the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Table, but that's what's taking place here inside of this passage. Now, quick survey, and I promise if you raise your hand here, you won't go all charismaniac or anything like that. You, you will promise you, you will be okay. How many of you guys have grown up in church? All right. Most of you in this room have grown up in some sort of church. All right. Um, how many of you guys grew up um, and uh, your, your church partook in communion once a quarter, once a year on special occasions? That's traditionally what you did, right? Okay. Um, how many of you have ever heard a sermon completely dedicated to the Passover Seder Eucharist communion Lord's table? A few of you, all right? As we went further, the number went down, 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 all right? And here's the reality of it, especially for us Protestant Christians, is that as, as Christians, as Protestant Christians specifically, um, communion has a, a, a kind of a, a weird history with it. And, and with that, I, I've experienced some really strange things. In the, in the church that I grew up in, and even as a non-Christian, uh, we took communion about once a quarter. Anybody with me? And we did never do it on Sunday morning. We did it on Sunday night. And in this charismatic Pentecostal church that I grew up in, on that Sunday night, I always liked it, or at least parts of it, because um, there wasn't any preaching that night. And I was thinking, man, if we don't preach at the Pentecostal church and we're not singing, then we're probably going to get out of here in less than three hours. Right? But on this night, we would step into the sanctuary and all the lights would be off. And then they would have, remember this, sis? And they would have the light like right over the table. And on the table in every good Protestant church, it says what? In remembrance of me. Then they would call us up by families. We didn't come up as an individual. They'd be like the bakers. And I just remember us walking up to the front. We'd sit down in chairs. They'd give us that little chiclet cracker. You know what I'm talking about? The little shot glass of some grape juice. 
And you would sit there, and the pastor would say things, and you, you'd eat it, and then you would drink it, all right? But then the real fun began in the Pentecostal church I grew up in, because we went from communion to foot washing. Every time we took communion, you got the added extra benefit of all the men going to one room and all the women going to another room and getting to watch old brother James's feet. Awesome. It was a great night when you realized that the same buckets used in feet washing were the same buckets that held the, chi the chips at the potluck. I've had some rather weird experiences around communion. I remember one, one time serving communion at a church, and all of a sudden, as we're serving communion at this big mega church, we've got the elements, and it was actually a cup like this and a plate like this, and we'd have one person holding the plate, and one hope they practiced intention, which is you taking a piece of the bread and making it soggy and nasty and then eating it, Right? And I was doing that, and I remember they would just not really fence the table, which I think is really dangerous. We'll talk about that today. And people would come forward, and I, I remember it didn't matter. It would be like a newborn baby, and you'd see parents tearing off bread, dipping their fingers into the juice, and then trying to shove the communion melons into that baby's mouth. I had a couple at one of the churches that I pastored, they got fighting mad, and, and, and this is one of the reasons why they left the church, was over communion. All right, Communion, the Lord's Supper. What is it? Why is it so important? See, I, I think that there is a, a problem with inside of specifically uh, uh, anybody who calls themselves Christians in, in a, lot of, a lot of churches, actually is that we're not taking the table serious enough. And the thing is, you and I and many of us don't really have any idea of what's going on and how serious the Bible takes it. All right? So, cat of the bag, here are all my points. Will you hit the slide for me, Todd? Here you go. In communion, we look back, we look inward, we look outward, we look forward, and we look at Jesus. All right? We look back, we look inward, we look outward, we look forward, and we look at Jesus. One quick last story before I jump into this. In my own journey and struggle, I feel like I've even grown in my understanding of this. I knew that there had to be a shift in my understanding as I, I read the Bible more and more about this, as I read more church history about this, but I, I knew that this all came to the head as I was at this children's event, and at this children's event at one of the churches I was pastoring, I didn't have any control over this, but I knew that something had went awry as at the conclusion of the children's event, they took the goblet like this and they took the plate like this, but in the goblet was milk and around the plate was donuts. And at the end, they took communion, and all these kids and their parents were dipping donuts. It was, it was a great day. If it had only been chocolate milk. <laughs> and dipping donuts into, chocolate, or into white milk and calling that communion. And I remember sitting back as a pastor at this church going, I didn't know that I was stepping into this situation and going, Something is not right about this. Which has only made me contemplate this even more. And so I want to encourage you this morning. It's a really long introduction. But I really want you to encourage me because I'm going to go pretty quickly through these points. To really consider what, it, what the Bible is saying about the Lord's Supper and your understanding and my understanding of it. We need to take it seriously. But just because I say we need to take it seriously doesn't mean that we have to be somber about it. Okay? And I hope to bring clarity to that as we go forward here today. All right, so we look back. Why do we look back? Well, the Bible tells us to. 
Here in Exodus, he's going to tell us several times, again, for generation to generation to generation, look back to this moment. From this time on, inside of Israel's history, what are they going to continue to remember? This, the night of the 10th plague, the night of the Passover, and its significance leading them toward the Exodus. So over and over again, God's word inside the Old Testament is going to come back to this meal, to this event, to this mighty movement of God's presence and action inside of the Israelites. So that we remember why and we look back. Why? Because that's what the Bible tells us to do. Now, you skip ahead to the Matthew passage, and, and they're sitting around, and they would actually be laying down, eating this meal, resting with each other. This would have been a celebration and a party that they were experiencing. It was the Passover. They're remembering what? Something backwards. Something that happened in the past. Jesus, with his disciples, is thinking back to this moment. And again, Jesus makes it really weird because what they had been doing all of a sudden, imagine you putting up the Christmas tree at your house, which you have done for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. And then all of a sudden, before you open your present, your daddy says, see this tree, kids? It's me. So you're not laughing because maybe that's what happens in your house. But that is weird. That is extremely strange. All right? That would be extremely weird. Could you, Matt? I mean, you just got awkward in here. That's exactly what's happening. You're having this party, and all of a sudden, Jesus goes, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all wondering, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And the Bible will tell us that Judas gets up uh, right around this moment, and he leaves. They've got the bread there. Why? Because of what Exodus told them to do in the Passover meal. They had the drink there. And Jesus takes something that had been ingrained in them, and he turns it and he says, this is my body. And this is my blood. Every time that you and I take the Lord's Supper, we need to look back. We need to look back, not because you and I have been in, in physical slavery, but you and I have been in spiritual slavery. The slavery of sin, the Bible tells us, that we've been a slave to our sins. And Jesus is reminding them that that physical slavery that the, that the Israelites experienced was a reflection of the spiritual slavery that all people are in. So Jesus is saying, you need to look back. Also, because we're on this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, what do we look back to? Jesus is saying, you look back to the cross. You look back to the cross. You look back to the cross. You look back to the resurrection. Because again, this is happening 20, about 24 hours before Jesus is going to die on the cross. And what is he telling these guys and these gals that were probably up there in that upper room? He's, he's hanging out with these people and they had not even seen the cross and the resurrection yet. But, but, but the Bible tells us that, that they began to understand even more after Jesus died, after he was buried, buried and after his resurrection that they would come back to these moments inside their three years with them and they would go that's what Jesus was doing that's what they were doing Jesus would tell them as often as you gather to eat so what is Jesus doing he's saying continue this meal now we're going to talk to some about Corinthians here in just a little bit this happens again after Jesus is Death, burial, and resurrection. Churches are planted. Paul plants uh, the church at Corinth. And, and guess what's happening inside the church? They're bickering and arguing with each other over a lot of sin issues. But do you know what one of the main sin issues is? Over the Lord's Supper. See, the Lord's Supper has caused division. It has caused major division in the history of Christianity. Specifically, on the idea of when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, what does he mean? Well, there are pretty much four main views behind that. 
The first main view is held by our Catholic friends. It's called transubstantiation. It's a big word. Ask somebody else to spell that because I can't. Transubstantiation. Our Catholic friends would believe this. They would believe that when the priest, when he blesses the elements, the unleavened bread and the wine, that when he blesses it, that in that very moment, that that bread and that wine becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, it still looks like bread. It still tastes like bread, thank goodness. It still looks like grape juice. It still tastes like wine. Okay? But if you could magically scale all the way down to the very atoms that are located in that bread and in that wine, guess what you would find? The physical body of Jesus, that you are literally eating the body of Jesus and literally drinking his blood. Inside the, the Catholic faith tradition is for you to be saved, this is the one of the things that you have to do, is you must eat the physical body of Jesus and drink his blood. That's why they call it a sacrament, all right? It is grace being bestowed upon the eater. All right? So that's the, that is the dominant Catholic view of things. And that's one of the views. The issue with that is that it causes lots of problems. And it did within, that, within Catholic history. All right? Because if, 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 if this really is the body of Jesus, what happens when some of the wine spills on the floor. Well, you've just spilt Jesus on the floor. And so literally, priests would have to get down and lick that up. People would, in Catholic churches would often steal the bread and plant it in their garden, believing that it would help their crops grow. There's just one crazy story about a man who ends up stealing the communion bread at the Catholic Mass, and puts it in his pocket because he's a beekeeper. And he, he goes and he puts the piece of bread in his beehive, believing that this will make his bees produce even more honey. So he sneaks it into his pocket. He goes home and he places gently the body of Christ into his beehive, believing this will make the bees work even more. But guess what happened? They stopped producing honey all together. This is his livelihood. This is the way that he feeds his family. So he goes and he opens up the hive, and lo and behold, all of the bees have stopped working, and they have built an altar to the piece of bread, and they're inside the hive worshiping the bread. Okay? That's how serious that this takes this. People began so clumsy, because if you've ever been to a Catholic Mass before, you walk up front and the priest places the bread on your lips and then he, he, he gives you the cup to drink. Well, people started being clumsy. And they, they did. They started bumping into the priest and spilling Jesus on the ground. All right? So inside of church history, what took place was, was they stopped giving people then the cup. And only the priests, they would give the bread, but then only the priests would be able to drink the cup because they got tired of licking it up off the ground. This caused major problems with inside church history that up to the point of what's called the Reformation, that, that many people, are, especially poor people, are not even being offered the communion elements. And so inside of church history, as we look back, not only to the Exodus, not only to Jesus, not only to the early church, but as we look back through our history, one of the major reasons of the Protestant Reformation was literally over the wine and the bread. People that you and I would call brothers and sisters in Christ, they were burned at the stake over this meal. This was extremely serious inside the Reformation. 
People lost their lives so that you and I, people like me and people like you, could take a sip of this fruit of the vine and eat this very bread. We must look back. That's one of your interpretations. The second one and faster, is that the bread and wine contain the physical body and blood, but it actually doesn't become it. Sort of like heat inside of a pan. If you have an iron skillet, I love cooking on iron skillets, those things get really, really hot. If you can imagine that Jesus' presence is like heat inside the pan, it doesn't change the pan, but the heat is inside the pan. A guy named Martin Luther believed that. The, the third prominent viewpoint on what happens when Jesus says that I, this is my body and this is my blood is, is that it, it's more of a spiritual experience, that Jesus is spiritually among us in a beautiful way. Much like the sun is in the sky, that's where it is, but what do you and I feel? It's heat. It's experience. We see its light. It is physically somewhere else. Jesus is in the throne room of heaven preparing a place for you and I, and yet spiritually speaking, he is here. This is the predominant Reformed view. The fourth kind of interpretation of way that you look at this idea is this, is that it is, as Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. That this is a memorial type of moment. It is a memory type of moment that the bread and the fruit of the vine do not become the physical presence. It's not that the presence of Jesus is up here and down here and around it, as the second one would say. It's not this spiritual kind of mystical experience, but rather it is this memorial symbolism that is not meant to save you in any way, as our Catholic friends would believe, but it's meant for your sanctification, that it's meant for you to be growing in Christ-likeness. Now, cat of the bag, where do, where do I land personally, is um, the third view that it is spiritual is the Reformed view. The Baptist typical interpretation is the memorial view. I am Reformed Baptist, so I'm real confusing. I'm both of those, all right? Here's where I personally land on it, is that it is spiritual that Jesus' presence is here right now, but his physical body isn't here. Now, people have taken that interpretation and, again, have made it this real mystical thing and that when you eat and when you drink like this, that Jesus comes in a way that he is not normally here. If you take it to that extreme, I can't go there with you. I believe that it's a combination of the recognition that Jesus is present among his people as he is always present among his people, spiritually speaking. And yet simultaneously, it is a memorial. It is symbolic. And both of those interpretations and beliefs would, would understand that, 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 that there's nothing that change about these elements, but that these elements are pointing to a greater truth about Jesus. Just like when Jesus says, I am a vine. Do any of us take that literally? No. When Jesus says, I am a gate. I mean, does anybody imagine that Jesus is some chain link fence walking around somewhere? I mean, that's what he says. No, what is he pointing to? He's always pointing some greater truth about these elements. So inside of the Lord's Supper, it's important as we see inside the book of Exodus, as we see inside of Jesus's experiences in the Lord's Supper, that we always look back, that we not forget, again, the slavery of sin that you and I have been bound to, but even more so that we look back and we see the cross of Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. This is my blood. Next, we look inward. We look inward. And this is where you have traditionally been taken inside of communion services, isn't it? All right, before we eat today, we need everyone to really examine yourself. Do you have any unconfessed sin? Anybody follow me? Heard that kind of language before? 
It's not that that is totally wrong, but that is not the primary of what's taking place here. When we see inside specifically um, the book of Corinthians, where we get this idea of examining yourself, and I, 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 will, I will share some of that in just a second, but we, we see inside of these passages, both in Exodus, but then inside the New Testament as well, is that the Lord's Supper is not to be taken by everyone. Inside the Exodus passage I just read, there is this exclusion, isn't there? If this person is a foreigner, can they eat? No. What must they do first? They must become a part of God's people, the book of Exodus says. And once they become a part of God's people, what can they do? Then they can eat. We, we will see that as we look inward, is that that's what the question is really taking place. Let me, let me read this passage to you guys. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 28, it says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of us who are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So, Paul is saying inside the book of Corinthians, there's this division. And one of the reasons why there's division, again, is over this meal. Let me give you a quick synopsis of what's happening. Inside Corinthians, guess what they're doing? They're celebrating the Lord's Supper. They're meeting together and they're having this meal. Now, here on Sunday mornings, typically myself, um, Jonathan, Adam are the first people here. So imagine us getting here, setting up the meal, and by the time that you get here at 9.30, that we're all lit, for you that are a little older, drunk. That we've been sitting around becoming gluttonous on the meal because it had expanded past just eating a little chiclet of cracker and a little shot glass of juice. It would have been wine. Really quickly, sidebar. You know the reason why we use wine, our grape juice here at Mission? Because it was wine. We simply do it as a courtesy to our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ who have struggled with alcoholism. We don't want to be a stumbling block for them. That's the only reason why we have chosen not to use wine or not to offer that. It's because we have people with past, just like I've got one. And just like we've got one, we don't want to lead anyone to sin, okay? But historically speaking, we're talking about wine in this cup, through the vine. All right? Everybody got Game on. All right. So in, inside of this moment, they're, they're dividing, they're fighting back and forth. Why? Because there are certain people that are getting to the love feast, and they're getting fat and stuffed, and they're drunk by the time everybody else comes. And, I mean, have you ever been to a potluck and somebody runs to the front of the line? And, and because you're, you know, you're at least Christianese enough that you step back and you're like, mm, mm, mm. And you're, everybody becomes judgy, don't they? They're looking at everybody's plate on the MC of who goes first. Oh, ain't going to be no food for me. Little Sister Susie over there, she piled up her plate with them appetizers. You know, Pastor Johnny over here, look how many buckets of chicken he got on his plate. I mean, they're just people like, plop, plop. I mean, this is what's happening inside Corinthians. And look, look, I mean, they, they ain't got no box wine stuff. This is the good stuff that's happening. And so Jonathan and Eric and Adam, we're all drunk by the time that you get here. And Paul says, this cannot be the case. We may become more lively. I mean, who knows? <laughs> and Paul is speaking into this. Because it turns out, it appears as though the wealthy people, because they weren't at work and didn't have to work as long as the poor Christians, that they were getting there first, they were being gluttonous. And so when our poorer brothers and sisters were able to show up after work to the gathering, there was nothing for them. And so Paul says, you need to examine your heart. 
behind the meal? Is it about you? Is, is it about us? I mean, traditionally, in the way that I grew up, was communion kind of went like this. Okay, we need everybody in here to feel really, really bad about themselves. And when everybody feels really, really bad about yourself, then you can eat. Anybody following me? If you were to examine yourself, what would you find out every Sunday? That you're unworthy every time. The meal is for unworthy people. The unworthy manner is for people who are arrogant enough to think that they're not unworthy to eat it. It's that they're arrogant. This is about me. Church is about me. It's about what I want. It's about going to a place and making sure that all of my needs are checked off. The worship better be like this. The preaching better be like this. They better have this stuff for my kids. When I go to MC, y'all better bring as much as I bring. You know, you need to wait. Just stop back. Let's, let's, let's all just, it's, it's really, can you see what I'm doing here? And Paul's going to say, and you need to examine yourself. God takes the meal seriously, doesn't it? The Bible tells us here that there are Christians in their midst that are going to become sick and that they're going to die in a gracious act of God that He takes their lives so that they don't continue to belittle and to be arrogant and to cause division in the church. When we come to this, inside the church is the meal for everyone. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. There are people that should not eat of this meal. And our Catholic friends believe the same thing. If you've ever been to a Catholic Mass, if you are Protestant Christians, you are not invited to the table. Do you know why, though? You don't believe what they believe about it. It would make no sense for you to take as a salvific meal and the placement of that bread on your mouth and that wine on your lips because you don't believe what they believe about those elements. It is not the same as what we do at the conclusion of our services every week. What we believe about it isn't the same. And so you, you, you shouldn't eat it because, again, this meal is about declaring, man, this is what I believe about Jesus and about why he came. And, and the, the gospel is the good news that there isn't a meal that I can eat to get salvation. There isn't, as we'll see here shortly in the next few weeks, a, a baptism that the baptismal pool doesn't save you, that this meal doesn't save you, that being here this morning, as much as I love seeing your faces here, does not save you. What does communion remind us? Communion reminds us that it is only Jesus that can save it is only the spotless Lamb of God, His blood that is covered over us, that can save. We attribute nothing to our salvation except for the sin that deemed it necessary to take place. So this meal is not for everybody today. This meal is not for a Christian, a professing Christian, who has an issue with somebody else in our gathering or in our church family. Because that's, again, what Paul is saying. That's why we've got to look inwardly. Let me give you an example. You ever got in a fight on the way to the church with your spouse? Liars. <laughs> I say that with all Christian love. You liars. Yes, you have. Or a kid, your kid. My hair's not right. You didn't comb my hair right. Anybody had that fight? I'm not looking at the Crosbys. They have a teenage daughter like I do. You pick out of the dress the night before. All right, Ava, 
pick out the dress. Right? You get up the next morning, that's the dress you picked out. I don't want to wear it. I hate that dress. Y'all are trying to make me look ugly. What Paul is telling us when he tells us to examine ourselves is to, is to go, okay, if I say that I believe Christ and if I say that, that, that I'm a part of this community, then before I profess Christ in the drinking and in the eating, then man, I, I need to go make that right with my brother and sister in Christ. So this meal is not for professing Christians who have an, uh, an issue with another Christian. If you love God, you're to love his church. I, I would say that this meal, and I think the Bible points to this, that this meal is not for professing Christians who are living in sin. Notice the term there, living, not struggling. There is a difference there. There is stumbling into sin, even if it's willful. And then there's blatant, willful living in a disobedient life. All right? If you have a, a, two believers, okay, and they're single, and they're living together, and they're going to continue in that process, that's willful disobedience. That is living in sin. We know this is what God has said, but this is what we're going to do anyway. All right? I would contend that that becomes then a matter of church discipline. And in that church discipline, the Bible would tell us is that we don't need to eat together in that way. We need to make this right. We need to be obedient. Again, all of us have come in here in an early, uh, uh, as sinners. The meal is for sinful people. But if there is this blatant problem between you and me, or if there's this blatant problem between you and God, and that you're willfully living as a rebellious person against His will, then man, you need to make that right between me and you, or make that right between you and God if you're living in this willful disobedience, and then come to the table. And ultimately, the reason why you shouldn't eat of this meal is because if you're a non-Christian, Again, this meal is about what we believe. Jesus' body, Jesus' blood, it is, it is broken, it is bled out for the covering of my sin. And if you're a non-Christian here this morning, then you don't believe that. It doesn't make sense for you to eat it. And the Bible will take that very seriously. Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, he'll say this, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. What's he saying here is that you're trying to mix both worship of the things of this world, of your own desires, and God. And the table points to direction. Choose you this day. Whom will you serve? Are you going to serve God? with all that you are, imperfect as it is going to be, but you're committed to this, and if you're committed to that Jesus and, and what He has done, then man, you are, you are in Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, if you are a follower, not just that you intellectually sin, that you can check off the boxes, did Jesus live? Yes. Did Jesus die? Yes. Jesus buried? Yes. Jesus resurrected? Yes. Boom! You get to eat. No. That's not what the Bible is saying. Bible is saying, man, as Jesus is, he is your Savior and Lord. Lord meaning he has rule and reign over your life. Many people are claiming Jesus is Savior, but he is not their Lord. And those of us who are saved, he is both of those. He is Savior and Lord. You cannot mix allegiance to Jesus and to the gods of this world. Now quickly, let me answer a question for parents. Inside the scripture, we don't see any kind of age limit on who can take it. Ultimately, who can take it? People who are what? 
followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus. Just because your little son or your little daughter wants to eat at the table does not mean that they should. It's not cute. But if that child is a believer, a follower of Jesus, then I believe wholeheartedly that they are welcome to the table. If they are yet to be that, then parents, that's a great opportunity for you this week to disciple your kids on the importance of the meal. The meal is supposed to bring together, but it is also supposed to do what? It does show a difference from those who are in Christ and those who are yet to be in Christ. So like here at Mission is that our heartbeat is that if you're not a Christian here today, please do not eat this meal. The Bible says that you're drinking condemnation upon yourself. And that's very serious. Our hope and heartbeat is that Jesus would save you either in this moment or sometime in the next seven days so that when we gather here next week, we get to celebrate what Jesus has done in your life. And guess what we do? Welcome you to the table. Here's what I believe to be the best practice for us. All right, And I cannot take you to chapter and verse of this I think that if we look at the whole of Scripture and if we look at church history, that this should be the order of things. Jesus saves you. Guess what you do after Jesus saves you? You get baptized. You get baptized. After you get baptized, you become a member of a church. And in that membership, part of that is what? Eating of the communion elements. Now, let me be very clear here. Here at Mission, we take the stance of, is that if you're a member of any church and are in good standing, any like-minded church, if you are a member and a participant and in good standing, so for instance, if I was to go down the road here, if I had this Sunday off, and, and if I was to go to Burton Memorial Baptist, or if I was to go to Rich Pond today, if I was to go to, to Living Hope today, or Christ Fellowship, I could go to that church today because we're a like-minded churches. We believe the same thing about these elements. And, and communion would be open to me. All right? It's so important for us to, again, take a serious look at this. All right, quickly. We look outward. And I think that this is one of the major culminating points inside of the, the communion elements is this. Is that when we look at this, we see inside the book of Exodus 12, verse 47, that all the congregation shall keep this meal. We see Jesus inside the New Testament. He'll tell us in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus says, I, he looks at his disciples and he says, I earnestly long to eat this Passover meal with you. We will see inside of Corinthians chapter 10 and chapter 11 that over and over again, Paul will say this, when you gather together to eat this meal, when you gather together to eat this meal, when you gather together to eat this meal, so when should we be eating this meal? When we are together at the church. So that means if Pastor Justin and I are hanging out at the fire pit tonight, and all of a sudden I go inside and I grab juice and bread, and I say, all right, we're going to take communion. Is that permissible? No. It's the gathering of the church. In this, we are to look outward. Communion is not supposed to be done in isolation. Just like I can't baptize myself, right? It is a public display of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we do together. So when I say we are to look outward, that doesn't mean to look and say, oh, well, uh, uh, Caleb Vanderpool, he didn't take today. That's not what I'm talking about. The Bible is, is saying over and over again about the beauty and the importance of us as a church family. That's why it, you need to belong to a church 
family. You need to be devoted to one. You don't need to get this piece from this church and this piece from this church and this piece from this church. Is no, for the sake of your own souls, you need to commit to the family. And so when we gather to eat and everybody is, as followers of Jesus, when you're taking that bread and putting it on your lips, when you're drinking from that cup, is that we're looking around to say what? These are my people. I'm committed to these people. The communion is causing division inside of the church of Corinth, and yet Paul is saying, no, the communion is to unify us, black, white, rich, poor, wherever you're from. If you are in Christ, you are welcome to this table. And when we do that within the gathering of the saints, we are declaring, man, I love these people. These people are my family. These people walk alongside of me. These people keep me accountable. The Lord's Supper was again a way for God to make His people really distinct. Inside of the meal, we commune with Jesus. And we commune as a church. That's why we look outward. As baptism illustrates the gospel, so does the Lord's Supper. It is the visible proclamation of the gospel. If you can imagine with me just for a moment that if baptism is, is sort of like you getting married, it is the ceremony. And in that ceremony, what are you saying? Jesus has saved me. Because Jesus has saved me, what do we say in baptism? I'm committed to Jesus. But also in baptism, what are you saying? You're saying, man, I, I'm, I'm committed to this community. We're to get baptized one time in your life, just like marriage. But we're to take the Lord's Supper time and time and time again. Much like every morning when I wake up and I look at that wedding band on my hand, it is a covenant reminder of what? I made a covenant to God, and I made a covenant to my wife, my people, that I will not leave, that I will not forsake, that I commit all that I have, that the man goes down so the girl goes free, all of those things that just saturate who Eric Baker is because of the gospel. As that ring reminds me that as my heart and soul wants to drift and wander toward all sorts of things, that that ring reminds me, though, I'm committed to Jesus. I am committed to my wife, Laura, in all things, as we are baptized and had that ceremony to display what Jesus has done, to display our commitment to Him, to display our commitment to the church family, likewise, every week, instead of us all getting baptized all over again, what do we do? We eat of the bread, drink of the cup. And every time, what, do, what does that do to us? It reminds us not of our faithfulness, but of the faithful groom, Jesus. Because why does Jesus say, remember me, this is my body. Remember me, this is my blood. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, believe upon me, trust in me, have faith in me, believe with me. The next thing that we do is that we look forward. Why do we look forward? Because that's what happens is inside the scripture. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, Jesus says, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. In 1 Corinthians, again, that we've covered a lot today in chapter 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If we had time today, we'd read from the book of Revelation, chapter 19. And at the end of chapter 19, or in the middle of chapter 19, what's taking place there? It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is the ultimate Lord's Supper. Inside of communion, we look back, don't we? Inside of communion, yes, we, we take some time to self-examine. Man, do, do I have... Uh, you know, unresolved sin, yes, but do I have sin toward others? Am I harboring hurt toward other people? Then we look outward and we say, man, these are my people. They, they've got my back. 
We're one. We eat of one bread. We are one people. But then we look forward every time that we take communion to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, Genesis goes to all kinds of bad over a meal. And notice what Jesus does in the book of Revelation. He brings it all back together in a meal. He redeems the broken meal of the garden. He makes all things new. And at the supper, the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, this for us that are on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, that it's pointing us is to say, man, I'm coming home. And we need to remember that this morning, that Jesus is coming again, that we need to be prepared for His coming. But until He comes, that we have something to do, as Paul just said to us. And what are we to do? To proclaim, to preach, to share the gospel with others until that very day. I hate to eat alone. I absolutely hate it. I love to be alone. But I'm a person that hates to eat alone. The table reminds us of that. That it's not about me. That it's about us. And oh, the gathering that will one day take place. Lastly, and most importantly, is that we look at Jesus. We look at Jesus. This is the ultimate. Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, he foretells that one day, that when the Messiah comes, that there will be a new covenant. And in that new covenant, that God would forgive the sins of His people forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so when Jesus is looking around a bunch of Jewish young boy or young teenagers and young men, and He says, this is my body, this is my blood of the new covenant, hush would have fell over the room because what is He proclaiming? I am that God. I am the fulfillment of that truth. No more will you sacrifice animal after animal after animal after animal. No more will you attempt through the law to be good enough to be good enough to be good enough only to realize through the law that you're what? Not good enough. But in this new covenant, because I am Jesus, because this is my body, because this is my blood, then there's a new establishment here that I am, again, the blood of the Lamb, that you are covered in the blood of the Lamb, that you can't be good enough, that you can't be holy enough, that you can't check off enough boxes in order for God to finally say, no, you're good enough to be welcomed in my hand. No, the new covenant reminds you, guess what? You're not that good. But we've got a really good Jesus. Got a really good Jesus. See, I believe that these elements and what Jesus was saying was definitely, he was not saying, this is my literal blood. Again, that causes all sorts of problems for you theologically and practically. What he was saying is this. I am your source of life. I am your source of life. Every time a good Baptist prays, Lord Jesus, bless His food to the nourishment of our bodies. Amen, hallelujah. And then we become gluttonous. Or we're praying over McDonald's, which is really weird. Or a buffet. Lord Jesus, help me to be, make more space. Expand my territory, Lord. <laughs> so I can stuff more of this fried chicken and mashed potatoes and mac and cheese into my belly. For the glory of God and the good of my belly, right? I mean, no. We say to the nourishment of our body. Jesus is saying in that, that, that moment, my rug keeps getting screwed up here. Uh, in that moment, he, he's saying, I am the only source for the church's life. 
I am your only source of life. The enemy is going to lead you to, to participate and try to find nourishment and relationships and money and power and all of these sorts of things. And Jesus is looking at his closest disciples. He said, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Take, eat, remember all that I have done. This is a celebration of all of my accomplishments. I'm coming back for you. This is what Jesus is getting at this morning. This is what we do every week. As often as you gather, my conviction is we should do it every week. So since I sit in the seat, that's what we do every week. Why? Because six days out of the week, I forget this, don't you? I forget you're my people. I forget about my slavery and sin, or actually I dabble quite a bit in it. I can forget the cross and resurrection of Jesus and it not be my focus. And I can become arrogant. And some of you are like, mm-hmm, amen. I forget I forget that Jesus is coming back. I forget the gospel. And that's what Jesus is ultimately exuding this. Jesus didn't say, memorize all of the Old Testament and you get in. Praise be to God. I don't know your phone numbers. If they're not my, I don't know my wife's phone number. How's that for a confession this morning? As soon as I put it into my phone, I forget it, but I can tell you all about transubstantiation and crazy stories from church history. So easy to forget. And Jesus is saying, in this reminder, he could have done anything. Climb these stairs. And you know what Christians have done in church history? They believe that in times, if you climb this certain set of stairs, then eventually God's going to say, all right, you're forgiven. If you'll touch this, and if you want to see some really distorted understandings of how this affects even whole church societies, man, if you travel to Mexico, you will see all sorts of, of distraction things revolved around this meal. You ever seen on the Discovery Channel those people like crucifying themselves in hopes that if I do this, if I enact this moment, if I'm crucified myself, then God will eventually let me in. And the meal reminds us, it is not about you. It is about Him. He is our nourishment. He is our source of life. All of these things, God's covenant to His people, the good news is, is I, I can't, nor will I, nor is it de de demanded of me to be good enough to experience the gospel grace of Jesus. We are saved by faith alone in Christ. What? Alone. And this meal, from Exodus to the New Testament, throughout the Reformation, as our Protestant brothers and sisters died, were burned at the stake at the hand of the church, reminds us of the importance that all of this is pointing toward the person and work of Jesus. Ultimately, we look to Jesus. It's about drawing close to Jesus in this moment. It's about drawing close to each other in this moment. Communion every week should be a celebration for us. Not this moment of, okay, we've got to make sure everybody feels really, 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 really bad right now, and then they're worthy enough to eat. That's not what should be happening. Is there a slight moment of, of, again, we look inward, but that's not the focus. Who's the focus? Jesus is the focus. And then from Jesus, it's His church is the focus. I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave you with this. When I used to be in shape a long time ago, and I highlight used to be, bold face, underline, capitalize, used to be. There was a time... I would neglect my family. I spent just tons of hours in the gym. I mean, I ran half marathons. I did CrossFit. I was part of that cult. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. I calculated everything. I mean, I drank protein shakes in the morning, protein shakes mid-morning, protein shakes for lunch. I mean, I was drinking eggs, all kinds of crazy stuff. Had veins popping out. I mean, 
My drug of choice would have been steroids if I could have found somebody who was Christian who could help me out. Okay? And y'all are like, y'all are laughing because you're like, yeah, I see you <laughs> now. And you're definitely not that guy. All right? But I had this motto that I had to work into my mind. And in that motto, it was this. Am I going to live to eat? You ever live to eat? You finish one meal and you're going, mm, what's for lunch? You just left a cracker barrel. Right? Remember Ryan's when that was a thing? It's nasty. I just feel like a cow. I mean, they line you through there just waiting to be milked. Okay? You go to Ryan's, and again, you bless Lord Jesus, thank you for this smorgasbord that we're about to eat, right? And as soon as you leave Ryan's, you're like, mm, what's for dinner? Most of us in America, we live to eat. You can tell because we're the most obese nation in the world. Okay? No stones. I'm the one on video right now. All right? If dad bods your thing, I'm your poster child. All right? I don't even go to the beach anymore and take off my shirt. Yeah, I'm that guy. I got a straw hat, full covered, like the, the sunblock on my nose, look like that. I look like Chevy, shaking, Chevy Chase in like vacation. Okay? I'm covered head to toe. I don't want nobody to see me. I'm Mr. Modest. All right? We live to eat. Or am I going to eat to live? The world will tell you, become gluttonous on everything that you see. Like the kids, the first day they stepped into Charlie and the chocolate factory. Everything you eat in this world is edible. Everything you see is edible in this world. And they lose all control. Right? This is the gospel of the world. The meal reminds us that no, we don't live to eat. The meal reminds us that we eat to live. And what do we eat? Jesus. And Him alone. We consume Jesus and Him alone for life. Let's pray.